Welcome back to another episode of Function. I am your host, Tom. And I'm Kimberly. Today, we're talking about art and engineering. So, Tom, tell me, what have you been writing lately? I have been writing code. Tell me about that. Uh, well, I was wrote some code for the website. Uh, it actually generates some of the art on the website, and it is graph paper. And I used a language called processing, which would be familiar to people who use an Arduino because it I think it's either the same or a very similar environment. I think it shares some code, or it used to. And so that's a lot of fun because you can make little animations, and it's really easy to get started, and it's really great. What style of graph paper did you choose? Well, engineering paper. Of course. Like lab note? Uh, it, it's that green stuff that has the light squares on it and uh, in, the, in the four boxes to the inch and then one box to the inch of heavy paper. But I made it so it's adjustable size. And so there's a little parameter you put into the program and it'll make different size graph paper for you. And are you entering any images in these little squares or is it a background? It's just a solid background of uh, a green that I spent a lot of time agonizing over just exactly how green it is. Because the actual paper is really a light green and it's really hard to tell if it's sort of headed towards blue or headed towards yellow. It kind of depends on what light you look at it under. And so I tended to go back and forth between those until I found one that was sort of neither. If you, look, if you hold engineering paper right next to it, it doesn't really look like engineering paper. But when you look at it on the screen, your mind says, yeah, that's what engineering paper looks like. But it's all a lie. And are you pleased with the outcome of your coding work? Uh, well, I, I didn't like the processing program because... I wanted to be able to write a program that I could run from the command line and just give it, uh, I don't know, a file or something that had what I wanted written on the paper and to have it come out. But I had to change the code and rerun processing in order to get it to do that, or at least run the processing environment. Uh, I thought you could run processing from the command line, and you can, uh, but it doesn't work very well. Uh, I, I did all the steps to make that work, and I didn't really like the way it came out. And so I switched to Python, and I re rewrote the program in Python. And that took way longer than it should have because I started with the processing. And I thought, well, I'll just start with the processing code and then just sort of retype it in in Python. And that's a way to make really bad code. And I thought, well, what if anybody ever looks at my code? It'll be terrible. So I... I um, I had to do a lot of rewriting and redesign of the code. So maybe I'll put that online, uh, how to make graph paper. Would it have been easier to actually make the paper than it would have been to write the code to give the image of the paper? You mean like scan a sheet of paper? No, like get papyrus and... Oh, no, making paper is really, really hard. Um, I watched somebody do that once, and it's way harder than you would think. There's a really good reason why it wasn't actually perfected until later in civilization because I think people really needed paper and they didn't have any. That's probably why a lot of stuff never got written down is because there was no paper. But I, I, I switched to Python and, and now the website has these little graphic uh, and all it's for is the little headers on the site. Um, but uh, you could use it for drawing paper and, and doing different things. Maybe run it through a printer and print out the um, paper. So anyway, that's what I've been writing. But today we're we're here um, 
talking from Chimera, and I want to talk about this place. Let's see, I had to look up what a Chimera was again. Uh, so a, a Chimera, I think the one, based on the logo here, there's different definitions for what a Chimera is. And I, I don't think it's a genetic engineering experiment, which is one of the kinds of Chimera. I think it's more likely to be the beast. Indeed. Uh, it it's is. got a it's got like a lion's head logo. Yeah. Uh, and a chimera has a lion's head and uh, the body of a goat and the tail of a dragon, if I understand uh, my mythology correctly. Uh, or maybe it has two heads. But the thing about it is that a chimera breathes fire. And I'm having trouble with the lion's head breathing fire because it seems like there'd be some singeing involved. You know, it's an awful lot of hair there to be to be breathing fire. So what do you think? I think I think it would need to be very skillful in that, yes. Yeah, it would have to be very well-directed fire. So that's the name of a monster that terrorized the ancient world and the name of... So why is it called Chimera? Do you, do you have any idea? No. None whatsoever. Okay. That's all right. So what's here? I, I see all these tools. Uh, we got some tables. We're sitting at a table. There's a row of, of tables uh, that look very nice. And then the normal sorts of things that you would see in a... Are we going to call this a, uh, a hacker space? It's Chimera Art and Maker Space. Okay. Art and Maker. Oh, yes. That sounds good. I like yeah. the sound of that. That's, that's almost like art and engineering. And there is engineering here sometimes. Uh-huh. So we have a wood shop, a metal shop area, a full jewelry studio, and laser cutter. Those are our big pieces of equipment. And we have room for co-working. We have an electronics area, a sewing area with an industrial sewing machine, and a little lounge area for hanging out. Wow. And so what is the uh, co-working area? What's that? You're in it. This is a co-working area. Okay. And this is ideal for people who would like to be around others and can tolerate a little bit of noise. Oh, okay. So like if you want to go, like if you work at home, but you want to go somewhere uh, and work somewhere? Right. If you want a space to go to physically every day so that you're out of your own environment and able to concentrate on work, yet be able to interact with others as well. Oh, okay. Well, that... I've heard of a lot of demand for that. Are there a lot of people that do that here? There are a few people who do that here. And okay. then they also have the benefit of being able to use the um, the tools and equipment. Um, and our biggest draw for that is our laser cutter. Ah, the laser cutter. So I, I got to hear about the laser cutter. So what's the stinkiest thing that's ever that you've ever smelled coming out of the laser cutter? Definitely it would be acrylic. Acrylic. And what is that? What is that like a painful odor? It is a, a strange odor. It's, I wouldn't describe it as painful unless you had to be outside underneath the exhaust fan for a while. <laughs> uh, but it is it is unpleasant. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that. I guess super glue is acrylic, and uh, I've done some soldering of things that had super glue on them, and I've heard that that's actually not great. So, and I, it smells like, uh, like it hurts. Uh, there's some pain involved, but hopefully it's, your, your duct work is, is sufficient. So what's, what smells the best? Probably wood 
wood. Yeah, has anybody tried any like sandalwood or anything? Uh, any, any really good? Any any particular kind of wood that that's I, good? I don't have enough information to tell you if okay. one type of wood smells better <laughs> than the other, but it does have a little bit of a burnt smell. So right. I would imagine that any aromas from the wood that would be characteristic of that type of material would be lost in the burnt smell. Okay. Well, I, I, I think um, we, we need to get some cherry or some apple or something, you know, that, something that'll make you hungry uh, when, you, when you smell it cutting. Uh, we'll have to, have to give that a try. So when you, when you cut wood, does it leave like a burn mark on it or does it, do you get a clean cut? It can, depending on the strength of the laser, leave a burn mark. Um, so I think people take a little bit of sandpaper over that if that's not what they're looking for. Uh-huh. Okay. So that sounds like a, a pretty useful tool. What? How, how many watts is your laser? Everybody wants to talk about their watts. You know, we'd have to look that up. Oh, okay. I don't know that information off the top of my head. I thought maybe it was a 50-watt laser. I think I, I think I heard people talking watts here before. Um, it's a CO2. Is it a CO2 laser? Do we know? Anyway, it's a big zappy thing. So, um, and, and you need some sort of software to run it, I'm sure. Right. A lot of people use Adobe Illustrator. Illustrator. Okay. So is, is that, um, let's see, I guess the open source alternative to that is Inkscape. And I think, I think that's what some people use is Inkscape as well. Have you heard of that one? I believe I have heard of that one. I think I heard our friend Rich. Maybe yeah, talk yeah. About that. I think Rich would probably be the Inkscape guy. That's probably who I heard it from. That you could use that because um, uh, he 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 would be an open source sort of a fellow. He's uh, Rich Gibson, and he wrote uh, he's written an O'Reilly book or two. Uh, he wrote one I think on um, uh, the NoCat work. Uh, which is on setting up Wi-Fi networks uh, for long shots for people doing uh, rural internet connectivity, uh, sending Wi-Fi long distances, because we're in the part of the world where that was a problem for quite some time, where nobody had any internet, and, and it was hard to get because it was so far from the phone office that you couldn't get it, even the dial-up was slow, you couldn't get DSL. And so people set up these uh, antennas all over the place and and shot Wi-Fi all over. And I believe that Rich wrote a book about that. We'll have to look that one up. And and if it's all if none of that's true, I'll have to edit it all out. <laughs> um, so speaking of editing, our editor is uh, Suzanne, and um, I gave her the pencils that you gave me. Which are those Lyra, those great big, they're like crayons. They're huge pencils. They're for coloring. And she got out her coloring book and started coloring. Uh, and she's been enjoying those, um, those Waldorf, that Waldorf collection of pencils. Excellent. Yeah, that was, um, I haven't really figured out the coloring book thing. But it seems to happen while the television is going. So apparently if TV isn't enough... Um, mentally for you if you start i've noticed if you start looking at your phone while you're watching tv that pretty much the tv you don't pay any attention to at all 
but maybe a coloring book is just the right amount of distraction from from what's on television. Right. I haven't quite gotten those coloring books either. They feel a bit stressful to me. So, is this are you a completionist? I No, I wouldn't say that. Okay. I was thinking about I was thinking about uh completionism because um because of tile, like bathroom tile. It's in these really nice rows and columns. And I think that's one of the nice things about it is that there's all these squares and they're all lined up in rows and columns. And and your mind, I think, likes that. You like seeing a complete field where everything is all filled in. And I think it has something to do with like the farming instinct that people have to make nice, neat rows of things and columns and get them all filled in and get all your plants growing and get your farm going. I, th- I think that's somehow built in to our uh, agrarian mind. Okay, perhaps I am a bit of a completionist because I really enjoy working in those Spencerian handwriting books. Ah. And I can draw little lines forever and find that quite relaxing and a great way to unwind. But the coloring books perhaps are just too much, too random. That's right. You sent me a, a picture of uh, of a handwriting exercise, and there were lots of rows and columns and little squares with each each one with the same stroke in it. When you look closely, you would see that there are a lot of the strokes in those little boxes that are not done properly. Uh, well, it looked good to me because uh, maybe I'm not a completionist. Maybe that's the contrast here. So um, I think I think maybe I was the to be the fire guy. I wasn't the farming guy. I was the guy who stayed back and kept the fire going. So what's this handwriting thing? I don't know quite how I stumbled upon it, but I decided one day that I wanted to learn how to write with a fountain pen. Okay. And I've since abandoned that because you gave me an excellent pen. And I've started using that with the Spencerian books that I've had laying around. And, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it started, but it's really enjoyable. And that was a 0.2 millimeter, 0.25 maybe, um, Pilot? Yes. And that's a great pen. I got it from Micah, actually. That's a rollerball pen. Very fine. It's excellent. I think you can do surgery with that pen. Yes, yes. It, it, it doubles as... Um, as a dissection device, for sure. It's it's about like a, a needle. So what is this, this handwriting style, though? I mean, where, where is it from? I'm not quite sure the history of it. I believe it was taught long ago in, in, in grade school. Is that Spencer? Spencerian? What? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think, let's see, I think I looked it up. I think it was... Um, I think it used to be used before typewriters for like business letters and stuff. It was sort of the standard handwriting for contracts and legal documents and so forth when they didn't have typewriters to make everything the same. And it's very loopy and swirly and ornate, right? I think it's perhaps less ornate than typical cursive script. Okay. Um, but it would be, it looked fairly standardized for the time that it was used. It looked like it would be widely used. It seemed like the capital letters had lots of big flourishes on them in the sample that I saw. There's a bit of embellishment. It's certainly fancier than any cursive writing we see these days, um, but it isn't as fancy as some 
some of the um, calligraphy scripts. Oh, right. Are. Right. So, so it's not quite calligraphy, but it's just, uh, it, it's almost like a different kind of cursive. Right. Okay. And it's hard to read. Is it? <laughs> well, I have trouble reading cursive. And uh, I, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I don't use cursive uh, myself, uh, except for the part where I'm writing checks, where I'm writing out the amount. And so I only remember the letters that are in numbers. So I have no recollection of Z <laughs> or Q <laughs> or any of those those letters. They're, they've fallen out of my cursive handwriting. Um I, I can make sometimes I can remember them, but uh, my hand doesn't naturally have the motion in it anymore to make those, except by thinking, uh, which you're not supposed to have to do to make a letter. <laughs> not supposed to be thinking now. What does a Z look like? Perhaps you are a completionist because <laughs> I think if you if you weren't, you'd be able to read cursive. Why is that? I don't know. It's all loopy and. Not a bunch of straight lines. Okay. Well, unless you're are looking at the the practice for writing. I like I like really uh, yes I do like like printed text um, very simple plain printed text it's my favorite the ones with the fewest errors in them and I, I guess I've heard that cursive is supposed to be faster you're supposed to be able to write it more quickly um, because you don't have to pick the pen up all the time uh, it flows right out but it always makes me think of Bartleby the Scrivener you know that story no that was a Herman Melville short story about a person whose job it was to copy legal documents and unfortunately there's this poor fellow named Bartleby who um, has that for a job it's actually a, a story about mental health issues actually sort of a 19th century look at someone struggles with mental health and uh, homelessness and so forth I think it, you'll see Bartleby's used as um, like a name uh, that people like for short story literature. I think it, I think it's been used a fair amount. No doubt, I'll see it all the time now. That you've mentioned <laughs> yeah, it. yeah, it's a perfectly cromulent word. So, what materials did you bring for the podcast today? I have my little notebook here for writing things down, taking notes. That's my Rhodia meeting book. Yet another thing given to me by Micah, who has much better taste in, than me in such things. And maybe she gave me this book because I don't think Micah does a lot of meetings. It's got a notes and an ac a column for actions. So I have this meeting book. And I also, I brought some paper I was talking about uh, when I was talking with Micah about render no show through paper. Uh, and this is the magical paper that doesn't um, bleed through at all. Uh, you can, you could just get out a can of spray paint here. Do you have a paint hood here at Chimera? I don't think we have a paint hood. No, oh, you need a paint hood. Okay, we'll get on that. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you just take it outside. I don't know. Um, yeah, you don't really have neighbors here who would complain much about overspray, so it's probably fine. But it's nice to keep dust off of things and also to have a way to exhaust the fumes from painting is to have a paint hood. And it may be difficult to get a permit for it um, because it, uh, paint in general, um, there's a lot of fire hazard because of the solvents. Oh, we'll put it on our long list of things to do then. <laughs> that that special list. 
So this this paper is uh, actually got a sheet of plastic inside it. So it's actually I think two sheets of paper with a sheet uh, of plastic between them, and so you can just spray paint or uh, use it as a placemat and protect your table or whatever you want to do with it. I like it so much I use it for. And that that one's that's got some matrix math on it. Um, this paper is fantastic. It's really nice paper. I'll have to give you some sheets of it so you can you can try it out. I wonder what this does for the people who write really hard and leave an impression on the the other side. So it could bleed through in that fashion, right? Yeah, yeah. You could always cut it with a knife or or really uh, press too hard with <laughs> yeah, your implement. Yeah, yeah. Probably if you're using a hatchet um, for your art, that's probably not the the way that 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 would be best. Right. Is this marketed mainly towards artists or engineering? Well, they say it's a drawing pad, so I'm going to go art. It says use with all media, and it shows a picture of a spray can and a big old marker and some sort of charcoal and a pencil and a paintbrush nice. and a rollerball. And I keep wanting to invent a new kind of pen, so I'm learning about existing kinds of pens so I can uh, make sure that I don't invent one that's already been done. So tell me, you were using this paper with pencil. Is yes. that because you like the weight of the paper, the feel of the paper, the novelty of the paper? Well, what do I like about it? Well, one is it's it's a bit larger than the paper I normally use, this particular one. And uh, I can erase on it quite a few times. So it stands up much better to multiple erasings than any other paper that I use. So when I have a problem that is big and I don't have much confidence that I'm going to get everything right the first time and I want to be able to erase, then I like to use it. And also, it doesn't have any lines on it. So it's for when I don't need lines. Like, I don't use it for drawing graphs very often. I also like it when I'm traveling um, because it has a really stiff board on the back. I chose this because it seems more permanent when I write it. It seems uh, I don't want to lose this particular set of calculations. And so uh, if I write it on this good paper, there's a better chance that I will keep it and it won't get all crumpled up somewhere. Uh, so it's a little more archival than engineering paper is. Now, I have a lot of archives of engineering paper, but I do tend to lose the sheets from time to time. Mm. Uh, and this was an important problem here that I was working on this particular sheet I, I was this is um, actually an interesting problem this is about uh, how things heat each other up and how they heat up so there's there's these it, you can make an analogy I really like analogies between um, circuits and things that are not electronic so you can you can take a circuit uh, and analyze it using math that that I learned a long time ago in college when I studied electrical engineering. And so one of the tricks that I've always used since I learned that how to analyze circuits is that if I have another problem that I can turn into a circuit problem, then I know how to solve it. And so I can look at a lot of different kinds of problems and say, oh, that's just like this particular circuit. And in fact, I have a book about that, about how to translate uh, different things into circuits like springs and masses uh, and string and rods and that sort of thing, uh, physics-y things. And then I also have um, a way to translate heat problems. How does heat flow from hot to cold? And so this particular one was about, that I was doing about heat. And what I like about it is that if you have two things getting hot 
or however many things you have getting hot, if one of them gets hot, well, they heat each other up. In addition to each one of them getting hot, if you have two things, like two burners on your stove, they're both hot themselves, but they also heat each other up a little bit. And so you can figure out with these equations not only how hot each one is going to get, but how much of its heat is due to the other one that's next to it. Is that a proximity thing? The other one acts like a heat sink? Uh, yeah. So, um, right. Heat, heat, as heat flows from hot to cold, uh, if you have two things that are hot right next to each other, well, if they're at the same temperature, then no heat flows between them um, because the heat is flowing from hot to cold. And so heat flows from one to the other in the same amount that it, that it flows back. And so there's no, um, there's no current, no, no uh, flow of heat between them. But if one is a little bit hotter than the other, then the hot one heats up the cooler one. If it flows out to the environment more um, because... Uh, well, it follows the path of least resistance, just like electrical current does. Um, heat heat flows from hot to cold that way. And the book you referred to, do you recall the title? Uh, oh, the book. Yeah, I'll have to look that one up. It's an old book. It, it's it's from, it's actually a little bit earlier than my normal favorite. My favorite books come from the late 1950s and early 1960s. This one, I think, is from the 40s, and I have a PDF of it. Uh, that I got online, there is a guy who has a bunch of vacuum tube data sheets online, and he's also digitized a bunch of old engineering books, and he has the PDF files up. This one is all about uh, circuit analogies, how to translate different kinds of problems into uh, circuit problems. And is this book very weighty and uh, thick, or is it a, a, a thin book, is it like the CRC manual? I've never seen it printed out. But I think it would, I think it's pretty thick. I don't know, hundreds of pages. It's in the old style of lots of uh, detail. Then he doesn't leave much to the imagination. He pretty much shows all the, all the steps. So um, it's got, yeah, it's got a lot of pages. Interesting. The a lot of the math books, like from the early 1900s, are very thin. And they just give the necessary information, like the Wentworth collection of, of math books. And today's math books are quite thick and full of the same information, but with a lot more words. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never really understood why there's so many words in math books, uh, particularly the, the beginning ones uh, that don't have that much, not that much substance to them. So who's Wentworth and what's what's the Wentworth collection? I've never heard of that. What is that? Well, I stumbled upon that when I was looking for math books for my children whom I homeschool. I think I came across it from a blog and it's just like a standard textbook that they would use in the early 1900s. And they're quite simple yet very efficient. Hmm. So have, is anything out of date in them? No, I don't think so. It, and so it's just math? Well, I know the math hasn't really changed very much, uh, at least at that level. Right. It is just math. And we have, sw we have since switched to using more problem-solving math. So we, we have moved away from those books. Um, but I still keep them because I, I love old books 
and I love the the simplicity of them. Okay, so do you have them on paper? I do, and they're available online as well, as as you're saying, like digitized. Right, right. So, so are, are these reprints or are they old? No, old, these are actual old, old books. Okay. Old books with somebody's name and the date. Oh, cool. In them. Are they musty? They are a little musty, which adds to the charm. That's why they're not getting thrown out. <laughs> so, yeah, musty old books. Um, so, yeah, I've noticed there's the good musty old book smell and the bad musty old book smell. These, so, these definitely have the good, the good musty okay, old good. book smell. Just checking. And so is it on good paper? Is it nice acid-free paper or is it uh, pulpy stuff? It seems a bit pulpy. It's a bit okay. browning around the edges. Uh huh. Crumbling apart. Crumbly. Places, yes. Crumbly pages. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess um, they weren't thinking about the archival nature of no. children's textbooks at the time. That was probably just as well. If they knew how terrible they they became, <laughs> <laughs> they would have. Yeah. Well, math books are fun. I have a a series of math books that I learned from, at least the high school ones, by Dulciani. And there's algebra and trigonometry and geometry and so forth. And they're all from the same series. And I don't think you can, they're printed anymore. So schools can't use them anymore. I think many school teachers would prefer to teach from them because they have really good problems and they're pretty um, easy to explain. They don't have weird stuff in them that you can't figure out. Yeah, those are pretty good too. Right. Schools just recently went through a huge purge of their um, books and their curricula because we just recently switched to a new method or mode of um, instruction, Common Core. Um, so anything that wasn't Common Core aligned was what they schools were just clearing it out. So why did that happen? Why did that happen? Was that like a, a a state thing, or is that a national thing? A national thing. Ah, okay. And so that was like federal government and sort of accountability and teaching and all that sort of thing. Right. We're from the government. We're here to help. Right. And more importantly, funding. So unless the curriculums, Common Core, aligned and approved, those materials were saved. Um, and most materials were not Common Core aligned or approved, so the schools needed to purchase new materials. Okay, so when they purchased them, what do they do with them? They dumpstered them, donated ah, them. okay, recycled. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, at least they didn't make a bonfire. I hope. No. <laughs> yeah, Common Core. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I I used to be in the homeschooling business, but I'm not anymore. And so, um, well, not business. Uh, it was something we did, but uh, don't anymore uh, due to graduation and so forth. But you're still in that. I am indeed. And how's that going? Peaks and troughs, I'd say. It's it's some days are um, are really magical and wonderful, and other days are very challenging. Mm. So, uh, what was a good one lately? Well, right now we are getting a little bit of a jump start on the school year. So we're learning history. And, um, the good thing is that I have all three kids pretty much 
studying the same thing. That always feels good. And another nice thing is we don't need to go shopping for school supplies and, <laughs> and school school clothes. So we don't have to buy into the consumerism of, of all of that and feel like we have to have everything just so at the beginning of the year. Having said that, we have invested in a lot of really nice supplies for writing, um, pencils, paper, pens, and nice art materials. So that that's really um, a nice thing to have that all year round. But that ties into something that um, you and I were going to talk about today, which is whether the pencil is mightier than the pen. Ah. And um, what is the source of some folks' attraction to better office supplies? Yeah. So which is mightier, the pencil or the pen? I'm going to have to go with pencil. Pencil. Wow. Bold choice. So the pen is mightier than the sword, and the pencil is mightier than the pen. That means the pencil is also mightier than the sword. It's but like a Rochambeau. Can, yeah, but you can sharpen a pencil with a sword. Oh, conundrum. So it truly is a Rochambeau because, you know, paper covers rock or whatever. What's your thought on the pencil versus pen? Oh, I, I'm with you. Uh, the pencil is the driving force of, of technology. One of the most important things, well, in my line of work anyway, is a pencil. And so uh, in engineering, if somebody gave me a great big box and said, you can either take the pencils or the pens, it would definitely be the pencils. And pens are good for writing checks because you don't want people to be able to erase the amount. Other than that, uh, I think the pens are pretty good. I have a bunch of old notes that are in both pencil and in pen, and I can say the pencil is pretty archival. It, it lasts pretty well. I think the pen is not quite as stable. As long as you don't erase, uh, I think you're okay. There are other people who feel the same way about pencils, and where do you think that that gets its roots? I, I think it's erasing. I think it's mistakes. <laughs> I think I think people who are who want to erase the the pens the thing I like about pens is I like the feel of the way the ink flows and sometimes I like them sometimes I'll do engineering with a pen um mostly to show off like, <laughs> like you're not going to make a mistake Exactly <laughs> yeah and it's best when you do this in a book without you know where all the pages are bound like a bound a hardbound notebook and you write in pen and you're doing your engineering calculations that's that's showing off. And is that like an engineering one-up? Do other engineers recognize that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty intimidating, yeah. That's um, hardcore. Wow. Uh, and so I like to use a black pen. The other nice thing about using a pen is that uh, it copies better. So if you need to put it into a copier, you get much better contrast. Pencil is always really hard to photocopy. That's if you're willing to share your work as an engineer, right? Yeah, that's part of it, though, is you need to, you need to share Hard to get work if you don't share. Hmm. In addition to the pencil being erasable as its main draw, I think its main draw goes back much further than that to school. When school starts and you get those fresh school supplies and the smell of the, the freshly sharpened pencil and also the the pencil kind of defines you when you're younger and in school they probably don't do this anymore 
but in grade school, do you remember the kids who got selected to sharpen all the pencils and how they were like the teacher's favorite? Ah, yeah. I remember that. I think there's a whole psychology around pencils as well. And if you forgot your pencil on a test day or Mm. didn't have the supplies you needed, you got the crappiest pencil that the teacher had laying around with the bite marks in it and the red ones with the red pencils with no erasers. Do you remember those? (laughs) Well, you mean colored red or with red paint on them? Red paint. Oh, okay. Uh, No, I don't remember red with, with no erasers. Uh, there were a lot of red pencils in my youth because that was the company pencils that my dad brought home were were all red because he worked for RCA. And so he got wow. these beautiful red pencils that were, I think the company that made them is still in business. It was I don't remember the name of it. I can look it up. But I believe it was the Blackfoot Indians uh, have a pencil company because uh, he, he referred to it as coming from them. They had pretty good erasers. And I still have a few of them, but the erasers have dried out on them. So they're more sentimental value than than anything else. But they had the logo on them. And uh, occasionally I would have an RCA pencil at, at school, but usually uh, kept those at home. And we had those all over the place. The uh, Yeah, so the school supplies and the sort of that was the thing about the beginning of school was you got the, all these fresh supplies. And so when you first dug into them, there was this sort of this sort of initial feeling of sort of soiling the, the perfect supplies and, uh, you know, making them yours, feeling the pencil digging into the paper because you'd always have a nice thick stack of paper to start with and you could feel the sheets underneath it. Uh, and you, know, you feel all the paper sort of yielding to the pencil. That's that's that was quite a quite a memorable thing. Uh, like I, I think I re- remember doing maybe my like my first algebra assignment or something like that of the year, and that was that was pretty special. And if you had a good pencil, did you feel more up for the task of of an assignment or a project versus having? A really yeah. crummy pencil. Well, at home we had an electric pencil sharpener, and so it was. We always had, I always had very sharp pencils to work with, and we had plenty of pencils. And so I would have a big stack of pencils to do my work, so that the point would always be very sharp. And I really liked using a sharp pencil whenever I could, anyway, or when I was trying hard, I would do that. Other times I was just sort of phoning it in. I would, I didn't care. I'd use a dull pencil and scribble something out. But the ones I remember, of course, are the ones that I did well. Sometimes I actually have, I run across old papers that I did and I look at them and I think, you know, I remember being a lot better at this than I actually was. (laughs) And pencils, they can get fairly expensive, right? Uh, Depending on the quality. Oh, pencils can be expensive. Yeah, you can get yourself some really nice art pencils. I never used those for school. That I knew of, anyway. I, I didn't pay much attention to what things cost back then because I wasn't buying. But yeah, there there's all variety of of prices you can you can go for. I like the uh, the Blackwing pencils now. They're they're the hipster pencils, um, and they're a lot of fun. There's a great uh, pencil podcast called Erasable, 
which is a lot of fun to listen to, and they talk about wonderful, expensive pencils, or and cheap pencils too, and just everything they love about pencils. Uh, haven't heard from them lately. That's probably because of the beginning of the school year. I think a lot of them are school teachers. So this might be a better pen question than a, a pencil question, but where is the line between a fine writing implement and an exquisite writing <laughs> implement? And what is, when you go to the side of exquisite, what do you get for that above and beyond the really fine material or the, the implement itself? Yeah, I think that when it, it gets really exquisite, when you can get the pencil to do something that is difficult with any other pencil. For example, to get a really black line out of a pencil you want, you know, really soft lead, you know, so you get a really soft pencil, like a, a black winged pearl, and you write this beautiful black line. And so that's what you get, but you, you actually give up, um, you have to sharpen it really often or live with a dull point. And so you actually end up giving up things in order to achieve some exquisite thing. It's like when you make one thing better, something else becomes worse. Otherwise, we would all have, you know, pencils that were perfect for every use and we wouldn't care what they cost. And with pens, that that exquisite mark of giving something up is that your net worth that you're giving up <laughs> when you buy one of those really expensive exquisite pens? Yeah, you know, I haven't gotten into the expensive pens yet. I'm going to the pen show later in the month in San Francisco. Uh, that's actually next weekend. I want to learn more about fancy pens, and may maybe I'll buy a fountain pen, but maybe not. So far, I haven't gotten much past rollerball pens, and those are inexpensive enough, and they last for long enough that I don't think too much about what they cost. Uh, it is nice to get a slightly better pen, uh, and I notice it. I've got a Fisher Space Pen in my hand right now, and it it feels really great. I like the way it writes. I remember you would get these graduation sets. You'd always get cross pens as a little box set of a cross pen and a mechanical pencil. Uh, was a very common graduation present when I graduated. And so I got a couple of these sets, and I thought they felt so great. They were very heavy. They were very dense. And then I found out later that they're dense because they're filled with lead. <laughs> <laughs> But they're gold-plated, and they look beautiful. And it's like, oh, it's, this must be solid gold. It's so heavy. But uh, no, it's it's uh, filled with lead. And and those are pretty great. But uh, actually, as far as pens go, I don't think they actually write that well. They have these fancy refills for them. And uh, I always had trouble getting them to, getting them to last. And the mechanical pencils, I, never, I don't think I ever really found a source of the the leads, at least in a store that I ever went to. So earlier you spoke about the quality, the weight of the paper, and the weight of the the pen. And there is a really nice feeling about having materials that you feel are up to the task of whatever you're about to do, that great thing that you're about to write, or that great math equation that you're about to do. It's really nice to feel like your materials are going to last through whatever project you're going to put them through. Yes. I feel that way about tools as well. You know, if you when you have a big pile of lumber to saw or something like that, you want to have that confidence that whatever saw you have or or 
whatever the operation is, that you're going to get through it, that you feel well-armed for the task at hand uh, and that it's sharp enough or you have a way to sharpen it and, and you're going to get through all that. So with school supplies, I usually look for, well, I get Ticonderoga pencils, and they're probably not the best pencil I can get, but um, (laughs) they they seem to last. The thing that I like the best is the Arrowhead Pink Pearl Cap Erasers. I put those on all the pencils once I come into the house, and they have a nice weight to them. Here, I brought one of these pencils. Ah, okay. So this is a classic little cap that you put on top of the pencil. Right, but they're much heavier, and they last much longer. They don't crack or um, pe- come off the pencil very easily. Right. Well, this one this one looks very nicely used here. It's got uh, it's nice and clean, so you must erase thoroughly when you erase. You get all Somewhat. the Somewhat. You get the crumbs. Uh, Get nice, clean crumbs. Yeah, when I was young, I figured out um, my class, I think it was third grade, had a carpet, and you can clean the pencil eraser on the carpet. (laughs) Goodness, it was brown. I I didn't teach my kids that because I don't want them doing that at home. But they probably would if they could. I use my blue jeans. I use the pants. I rub them on my pants, too. Uh, I I just cleaned up some erasers. I got some... um, I got a collection of erasers. Um, someone was, I, I, I bought, I have this um, pencil case that I carry in my backpack now uh, and I carry it to work. And so I, when I'm working, even if I'm typing, I unroll this case full of pencils and put it above my keyboard. And it gives me something to look at there because it's quite a distance to my monitor because I use a huge monitor. So I have room between my keyboard and my monitor for something else. So I put this big roll of pencils there. And so now I'm the pencil guy at work. So somebody found a bunch of erasers uh, while they were cleaning out a cubicle. And so they, they brought me these um, this stack of this whole box full of erasers. And then I, I went over to the probable culprit and I said, so you trying to give me a message? Like I make a lot of mistakes? Is that what? <laughs> like you're not a guy who writes in ink in his... Yeah, paper, yeah, I'm no longer notebook. bound notebook and ink guy. Now I'm pencil guy. Now I'm hipster pencil guy. With uh, erasers. Yeah, and now I have many erasers, and they're pink. I'm, I use the Mars Statler plastic eraser, the big white ones, and I like those a lot. They're very soft, but you have to remember to carry them around, and so they're inconvenient that way, and you have to put down your pencil and pick them up. Right. Now, when you, you just mentioned cleaning your pencil eraser on your jean um, yeah. pants could you do an equation for the heat transfer from the pencil yeah it's warm <laughs> yeah so that would be the uh that would be a friction thing yeah so you would take the force of the eraser against your pants and as that goes along your pants you're doing work uh, oh yeah yeah the coefficient of friction is typically mu in the physics book you can you can tell how hard a class is by just counting the number of greek letters in the textbook so if you open up the book and you see you know more than two or three greek letters you know you're in trouble so the the physics book has maybe three or four greek letters at least in in your freshman physics and so that mu would be one of them which is a coefficient of friction so you would take the force which might be the force of gravity or the force of your hand 
pushing down and you would multiply it by this this mu number and that would give you the the force of friction so the harder you press down the more friction you get as you do that force and it goes along uh, the length of your pants that causes uh, work to be done and where does that work go well that work uh, gets mostly turned into heat uh, and so that would be your heat of friction this is a much longer answer than you were looking for <laughs> Um, it translates to a lot of math and a clean eraser. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, yeah. Uh, the work is equal to F times mu times x, where F is the force you're putting down on the on the uh, on the pencil, and mu is the coefficient of friction, and x is the distance that it travels along. So the harder you press, uh, and the faster you go, the hotter it gets, which makes sense. Um, yeah, that's the coefficient of friction. Wow. It's been a while since I thought about that. I almost forgot about mu. Let me rescue you from your math problem there and show you this paper that I brought in. What so this is got? all plastic paper. We tried working with some alcohol inks this week, and I didn't want to use tile. I think most people like to use those on tile or ceramic surface um, because the alcohol inks, once you add like 90% alcohol to them, they spread out. And um, I didn't want a bunch of tile. We have three kids and that amasses a lot of ceramics. So <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of ceramics. So we got this paper called Yupo and it comes in various weights and it's it's actually plastic. I think it, it did a really interesting job with the alcohol wow. inks. Alcohol-based inks. Yeah, it looks like it ran very... Uh, it flows out. Um, it spreads out. It does. So they're usually sort of solid area fill type brushes, brush strokes. Lots of adding of color. I guess when you, if you keep adding all the colors together, you get some sort of a blue-black, but... Uh, looks like there was some restraint here at least. And, uh, <laughs> That's generous. That, that was my daughter's and, um, she could not get enough ink on that, um, Yupo paper. Yeah. Well, I can see why you'd want a lot of ink on there because the ink is really interesting and it's sort of dimensionality when you look at it is when it catches the light, it's really interesting because there's the paper, which reflects the light in sort of a soft way. It's not, it's not shiny paper. It has a nice flat reflection from it. One of the things I look for in paper is when you look at it, if you can see the lights from the room in the paper, and then you have these hot spots, and that that's very annoying. You want it to have a nice diffuse reflection. And one nice thing about this paper is that the reflection from it is quite diffuse. That's true. And they so this is the opaque paper. They also have translucent which still looks a bit opaque in my idea of opaque in that you do, you can't see through it. It's not like a um, a clear piece of paper, it's, it, but it does allow more light than this to come through. Yeah, this is, this is quite opaque. And yet the ink, when you put the ink on it, the ink is quite shiny, or at least this ink is. Yes. So there's this huge contrast between the like little highlights of the ink and, and the flat, diffuse reflection of the paper which makes the ink look extra shiny 
so I'm liking this shiny ink effect. It's got a lot of flash to it. I would think the reds, yeah, the reds should come out really dazzling. Ah, yeah, there's some orange here that's really pops off of the page. I think people use this for watercolor as well, and we haven't tried that yet, so I'm curious to see because I don't think it would be as shiny as the alcohol inks. Yeah, well, uh, this is an interesting thing. So these these pictures are kind of smeary. Or uh, can you get like a fine line on it, or does the alcohol ink want to spread out all the time? It wants to spread out, and I don't think that that is the in, the intention of using alcohol inks is to get a fine line. Oh, okay. That's very cool. So I wonder, do you remember what type of alcohol ink it is? No, I can't recall. And how do you apply this alcohol ink to it? Is this done with a paintbrush or something else? We dropped it on. Yeah, we. first of all, you have to wear gloves. Mm. You will be stained for a very long time if you don't. So, um, And you have to be, I think, really careful because I was quite concerned that we would drop it on the floor and then the floor would get stained as well. Um, so setting up the environment for working with these paints is probably pretty important or these inks rather i think we just we used paintbrushes we use straws to smear it you can take the edge of a straw and smear it along and we use straws to blow the ink across the page and so i think it's mainly just dropping it on and then you can use 90 percent rubbing alcohol isopropyl rubbing alcohol, and spread the colors out that way. That's probably why I never saw this in school is because the mess mess element to it was probably made it prohibitive in most school environments. Right. It is. It's it's kind of like um, it's a little complicated doing this art because it is very relaxing and soothing to see the inks just kind of spread out and just take their path, but it's very unnerving. (laughs) <laughs> working with children with this, <laughs> that it might actually spill over and create a, a problem. So it's art when it's on the page? Yes. But when it's not on the yes. page, yes. <laughs> it's destruction. <laughs> yeah, it seems almost like an outdoor activity. But the, you, know, you still have to worry about your hands and your clothes and your shoes and everything else that's around. Um because, yeah, it looks like it has quite a bit of penetrating capability. And then, of course, you don't want your children to look like counterfeiters. Actually, that they might have, like, street cred that <laughs> way, right? <laughs> or temporary tattoos would be the other way, the other problem there. Yeah, you have to be careful that when you get it on your fingers, if you get yourself cut, or if you cut yourself, you will get a tattoo where the cut is. Because the ink will right, go underneath your skin. Yeah, yeah, you have to take care. It was really fun talking about supplies today and learning a bit about engineering along the way. So it looks like you're going to have a lot more material to talk about after this weekend. I'll be going to the pen show. Excellent. That's in San Francisco. It's actually, I think, in San Mateo or Point South. It's by the airport uh, south of San Francisco near where uh, the Maker Fair is as well. Uh, so it's in a hotel down there, and I've never been to a pen show. So I'll come back with a report of what it's like. Great. Will that be the next podcast? I think so. Looking forward to it.
Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. This is the end of another episode of Function. Visit our website to find show notes and see pictures of what we talked about.